0: This is the senior year, I know, for some students and um, in our body. And as you get closer to graduation, I, if you go to a public school or to even a private school or some kind of combination, I don't think you would do this as a homeschool family. Uh, it would be a little interesting if you did. But I, I remember, and most of you have remembrances of those senior superlatives. Uh, that's what they, we called them in our day. I don't know what they call them now or if they still do this. Uh, maybe it's not politically correct, but we had in your yearbook, you would have the, you know, class favorite and best dressed and um, most friendly and most athletic and and um, the class clown. I won't ask how many of you were nominated or received that award, but I have my suspicions. Um, <laughs> uh, or, and there and there was always most likely to succeed. Um, I'm not sure how accurately high school students can can predict the likelihood of success of their peers. Um, I'm sure we probably messed that up big time. But I, I guess nominees for most likely to succeed, you'd be thinking of of academic qualities and strengths, and social skills, and and um, Character qualities; those are the kinds of things that would make the recipe of someone you would say is most likely to succeed. Or what would happen is a bunch of people would conspire together and vote for some real slacker, and the and and it just kind of as a cruel joke, which I know happened. Um, well, if there was if there was a, 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 a superlative for most likely to succeed in Judaism, Nicodemus would have earned that award. Um, he was an intellectual giant in the Jewish world. He was a, a social pillar in the life of the nation of Israel. He was he was um, known for his strict morality and aboveboard character. To find Jesus talking to Nicodemus, as we did in John chapter three, it made total sense that God, if He was going to talk with somebody, it would be Nicodemus. But in John four, we find Jesus talking. What were we were looking at this morning to the to the polar opposite of success. We, we began eavesdropping on this this encounter that Jesus has with this woman who would be nominated for most unlikely to convert, we could say that if you ever had a caricature of someone who, who would be the least likely to become an effective witness for Jesus Christ, an effective evangelist it would be this woman, the Samaritan Woman. With this checkered past and checkered present. And, and so it, it's, it's a least likely scenario. But Jesus here, He comes face to face with this social pariah, this woman. And, and in doing so, I would say He's coming face to face with us. And I want to show us, show you that this morning. So we're going to consider ways in which Jesus brings us face to face with um, with himself, with ourselves this morning. So the first thing is that Jesus brings himself face to face with us, with ourselves in this passage. Now, as Howard alluded, the, the whole conversation with this, this woman begins with a tired and thirsty Jesus, which just saying that is just, we should say, what love. That God would leave the glories of heaven and condescend and enter into this world and become a baby and be raised in this fallen world without sin and yet and yet endure the the challenges of fallen humanity of life in a fallen world, hunger and thirst. But all right. But he he came and you have this tired, thirsty Jesus asking a woman for a drink. That's it. That begins. But she balks. She recognizes he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, that just doesn't happen. And yet Jesus goes on and says, I have living water to give you if you'll drink it. She, she doesn't get it. She misses the metaphor that Jesus is setting forth for her. She just can't break free from just physical thoughts. She can, she can only think about a bucket and about a, how deep the well is. That's all she can, can get her mind around. And So verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then we read verse 16, Jesus touches on this raw nerve of her soul. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Now, read this and we think, where does that come from? (laughs) I mean, we're familiar with it, so we kind of know, but... Why does he change the subject so quickly? It's like, squirrel. I mean, this is what, kind of what it seems like. Kids get that, adults just, you know, just, trust me, they. But, but, from living water, go call your husband. What, what happened here? What's going on? And he, and he never says another word to her about living water. This is what's been so important in the conversation, he never returns to it again. Now, I said this last week at the end, and I just want to say it again. I don't think that she's just saying, I'm tired of lugging this bucket back and forth to the well every day. So give me this water, so I don't have to come back and forth here. Back and forth to the well, this, that half-mile journey every day. I'm tired of that. I think, I think that Jesus detects in her something that shows this is more than a matter of inconvenience. I think it's more like this. I, I don't like... Coming out in public like this. This is so embarrassing. I feel so vulnerable. I feel so ashamed. I, I do anything. To have to avoid this process. Every day of my life. Coming out here. In the eyes of the women staring at me. Glaring at me. And the other reality is that Jesus knows her. Jesus knows all people. We saw this at the end of John 2. He knows what's in a person. He knows the stuff inside. He knows her marital status. He knows her past. He knows her present. He knows her sin. And he and he knows what's under the surface. He he's forcing her to deal with what's on the inside of her life here. And so he's exposing her not not to people, not to others to humiliate her. He's exposing her to her and to himself to break her to humble her. Grace. So he's bringing this woman face to face with her true self, and she tries to dodge the question. Verse 17: The woman answered him, "I have no husband." True, but Jesus presses her, and he's going to show her the full scope of the moral ruin of her life. He said to her, "You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have." is not your husband what you've said is true she's busted graciously busted jesus had offered her living water that would bring her life and joy and satisfaction and all of these things that she promised not not to her body which is all she can think of but to her soul this is this is what it's about it's her soul that's so thirsty and she doesn't get it though so she, jesus is he's showing her the real thirst of her life she hasn't she hasn't gone through sexual relationships with six men without being thirsty she's been married five times five times and she's at least had six relationships there may have been others between those marriages so there's this emptiness in her life she's thirsting she's longing for something and either she can't find what she's looking for in a man, so she moves on to the next one, assured that the next guy is to give him, going to give her what that dirt ache in her soul is longing for. So maybe that, or maybe that, that other guys are looking for her to fill some void in their life, and, and yet they don't find it, so they, they they drop her like a bad habit, or maybe some combination. But either way, there's this, this cavernous void in her life, in her soul, and She's tried to fill it up, but nothing's worked. And she's just stuck in this darkness, this painful, rebellious darkness. And Jesus just moves right into it. And, she, and he exposes it. She thought that her greatest need was physical. She thought her greatest need was another husband, another man. She thought her greatest need was water so she doesn't have to endure the shame of this process every day. But Jesus shows that her greatest need is spiritual. That's what He's been showing her and that's what we'll continue to show her. I just say to you, do you think the greatest need of your life is physical? Young man, young woman or older man, older woman. Maybe your heart has been broken and you think... That, that if the emptiness of my soul will be filled up if the right guy, the right girl comes along. Do you, do you think that the void in your life can be filled by a new career? Job change? Or by a move? We can get a fresh start in a new city and everything will be better. Do you think that that longing in your soul that emptiness that thirst is going to is going to be quenched by a new hobby or a new hairdo or a, or a, a, a new car new friendship new whatever anything can satisfy your soul is that is that really if you're honest this is this is what you're struggling with well, Jesus is graciously bringing you and I face-to-face with ourselves this morning. And he's, he's showing us that we need much more than a change of circumstances to quench that thirst of our souls. Your, your, thirsty, your thirsty soul can only be quenched by drinking deeply from the living water that comes to us in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what He offers this woman, that's what He offers us. So He brings us face to face with ourselves through this woman. Second thing Jesus does is He brings us face to face with His Father. With His Father. So the woman is squirming. She's she's So she changes the subject. Verse 19, the woman said to Him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's a brilliant deduction. And She has this great perception that here's this guy that just knows everything. Just met him. And yet he knows her entire life. And so he must be some holy man of God, some, some, he must have special access to knowledge that other people don't have. I perceive that you're a prophet. And I think she's frightened by this. And so the best defense she has at this point is kind of to find some diversion tactic, tactic. And so she asks this, Theological question, or she implies a theological question here, to detour around her sin. And instead of dealing with her guilt, instead of stopping and saying, yes, I'm thirsty, and drinking deeply of the eternal life that Jesus offers, that will quench her soul, she tries to drag Jesus into this academic argument. And it's this question that was debated for years between the Jews and the Samaritans. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you, as Jew, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What she's getting Jesus, what she's saying to him. Where do you stand on the worship wars? (laughs) Where are you at on this issue? And this would get any... Rabbi sidetracked. Because they would love to talk about this. Now what's interesting. I think. Is thinking about this week. Is that Jesus goes with it. She's changing the subject. But Jesus goes. He doesn't call her out on this. He doesn't say. Don't worry about that. Back to the adultery. That's what we were talking about here. He goes. He never goes back to the issue of her. Immorality. He has his foot in the door of her heart and that's good enough for him. And so he goes with it. He, now, he also doesn't let her dictate the conversation in the sense that she's, she's asking about where we should worship. Jesus just kind of ignores that, sets that aside and says what's really important is who you worship, how you worship. So he redirects the conversation. How and whom are vastly more important than where. We worship. So, verse 21, Jesus signals the arrival of this new, new era. He says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. So she expects this heated argument with this rabbi about the location of worship, defending, he's gonna defend Jerusalem as the focal point of how, where God is to be worshiped, and, and as opposed to Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans have their central place of worship, and yet Jesus just kinda of rejects the whole argument. Now, I just as a side note, I've, I've heard this passage used in this way, but Jesus is not Saying it doesn't matter whether you worship the Jewish way or the Samaritan way or whatever way. As long as you worship God. It's not what he's saying here. This is not all roads lead to God. You know, Islam, Christianity, Mormonism, Buddhism. It doesn't really matter. We're all kind of going in the same direction. Same God. We have different names for him and different ways of worshiping him. Just as long as you worship God. That's not it. Jesus doesn't. At all affirm the validity of Samaritan worship here. In fact what does he do? He calls her. He calls them. The Samaritans agnostic. He says verse 22. Jesus says being a Samaritan. You worship what you do not know. That's that word. Agnostic. Agnosis. Without knowledge. We get a word ignorant. Ignoramus. I've been called that in my life. Probably more times behind my back than to my face, but uh, that's, but, but this is it. He's, and this is what he's saying. The problem with Samaritans, the Samaritans' worship wasn't, it wasn't a mountain issue. Which mountain? The problem was they don't even know who they worship. They're, they're, they worship who they don't know. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, it doesn't matter whether you come the Samaritan way, the Jewish way. No, he says, the Jewish way is the right way. He's affirming that. This is the way God ordained. Verse, In verse 22, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It's through the Jews that redemption has come. Now, don't miss what Jesus says next. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him he's saying the where is not even nearly as important as the who true worshipers worship the father jesus brings us face to face with his father he brings us face to face with our father if you're in jesus christ Saw this at the beginning of John's gospel. This is part of his reason for writing this gospel account. That, and John chapter one verse twelve, to all who did receive him, were Christ, who received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So we we can, God is our Father if we've believed in Jesus Christ and received eternal life from Him, and so He's He's bringing us face to face with the Father. I just say uh, this is just kind of for been a christian for a long time I, I think maybe one of the things that i'm not saying this is in any way an error so please listen to it, but I, I just let me just make the statement and then i'll explain it i would just say christianity we need to be clear that christianity is not a unitarian religion that that we we talk much rightly about being christ-centered And, and we should, we exalt in the, in Jesus Christ and we glory in Christ and we worship and honor Christ and that is good. And so most of our songs are directing us to, to Christ and to make much of Him. But sometimes it can sound almost like we, like we have this Unitarianism of the second person of the Trinity. God the Son, Jesus Christ, and that He, the only person we worship is Jesus. But Jesus is saying here, He's bringing us face to face with the Father and He's directing our worship to Him. The Father is seeking worshipers of Himself. So remember that one reason Christ came, one of the stated reasons is to reconcile us to the Father. And so there's a sense in which a worship should focus in on the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that, that we don't worship Christ's Spirit, that our worship should be distinctly Trinitarian. We worship the entire triune God, but here we have Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, telling this woman and us that the kind of worship, about the kind of worshipers the Father wants for Himself. And I, I just think it's a, just a mild corrective maybe to an overemphasis. And so the who of worship is more important than the where, but also the how. So the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. Verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So God is spirit. He, In the Greek, it's literally a spirit God is. That's emphatic. God is a uniquely spiritual being. He's completely spirit. He has no physical limitations. He's not some stone deity or some wooden carved deity or some mountain god or some sun god. He is spiritual. He's a personal, real, independent, spiritual being. And being a God like that, how is he to be worshipped? Just external formalism isn't going to cut it. It's, he's to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Now when he says in spirit and in truth, uh, the spirit here, it's not a reference to the Holy Spirit. This is, we would say, lowercase spirit. He's talking about in our human spirit. Now we do worship in the Holy Spirit and we should worship in the Holy Spirit. That's certainly taught elsewhere in scripture, but that's not his point here. What he's saying is that worship, a worship of the Father needs to be, it needs to be that our entire spirit, heart, soul enters into it. This is how we're to worship this God, this Father who is Spirit. Worships to come from the depths of our souls, our inner being, the very core of of who we are. You get an, an example of this, and remember, Mary, Virgin Mary, that magnificat that we sing in in reference at Christmas. And what does she say? I think this is a great picture of what's being talked about. My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's what he's saying, we're to worship in spirit. That's what he's talking about. That's true worship. That's kind of father, the worship that's kind of worship that the Father is seeking for Himself. It's to be in spirit. The the scriptures repeatedly show the opposite of what this true in spirit kind of worship is. We see it in Old Testament and New Testament. You have Jeremiah just as one example. He goes to the temple and he says, Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. This kind of almost incantation here. The where is so important. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Verse 12. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, that former worship center of the Lord, where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. It's in total ruins. So what Jeremiah is saying under the anointing of the Holy Spirit is that he's telling Israel that their worship has become dead. Dry. Outward, external, formal, formalism. That's all it is. It's just saying the right words, doing the right things, that's it's empty. It's not in spirit. They're, they're simply going through the motions, reciting prayers, singing hymns, but their hearts aren't in it. I mean, Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. He's quoting Isaiah, but he says to in his own day, Matthew fifteen, eight, this people honors me with their Lips, they give lip service, but their hearts are far from me. And what Jesus is saying, the the kind of worship the Father wants is worship that's in spirit. Not looking for empty religion, not looking for externals, he wants it to come from the heart. Now I know I don't I don't want to limit worship to what happens in this room one day a week, but I I don't want to say that it has no relevance to what happens in this room on the Lord's Day. This is a unique and God ordained part of the way that one way we worship God is in the assembly, and it ought to show up. We ought to worship in spirit. This is not just mouthing words and just getting through it, not just enduring the sermon, but it's it's engaging with God in our inner part of our being, rejoicing in the spirit and God our Savior. So it's in spirit, but it's also in truth. It's not. It's in truth. I'll come back. I think, I think what he's saying here is that he's saying in, 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 full accord with what's true of God, what he's revealed of himself in the scriptures. The Father wants people to, who will worship him in accordance with truth, not, not according to what the preferences of people, the public opinion polls and what, what the felt needs are of the masses. That's not what he's after. We're, 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 he, he's wanting him, himself to be worshiped in accordance with what's true of him. His word. If you want to see an example of the opposite of worship and truth, you, you, you look no farther than God's people at the base of Mount Sinai as they're worshiping the golden calf. That's, that's giving the people what they want. And and that was worship according to felt need. They, this is what they demanded that was given to them and they were bowing down and it was idolatry. They were worshiping. It was quite a, quite a spirit, a human spirit filled worship time but it was not in truth so it's so it's not an either or proposition what he's saying is you worship the father in spirit and in truth that's the kind of worshipers god is looking for for himself you don't you don't get to pick and choose some tend to worship more and emphasize more the in spirit part and de-emphasize the truth part others focus solely on the in truth part and Think that in spirit part is just kind of a, a bonus that you can take or leave, and neither is okay. It's 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 both are one sided and both are wrong. So the true worshipper worships from the heart, according to the truth of God's word. And that's again, there's great application for this. How are we inclined? How are you individually? How is our congregation inclined here? Do we are we one sided? Uh, in our corporate assemblies, in our own a time of worship and just how we live our lives. Well, the woman begins to crumble here under the penetrating power of Jesus' argument. She has this kind of one last ditch effort. She, 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 she grasps at the hope held by both Samaritans and Jews that the Messiah would come. And so this is where she turns. And so this brings us to the third thing that Jesus does here. He brings us face to face with himself. Face to face with himself. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, one of the things you, you know, many of you know if you've read through the Gospels and even as we work our way through John is that Jesus is very reluctant to reveal his role as Messiah to people. But here, to this despised Samaritan woman as she's, he's alone with her. He, he reveals himself. Verse 26, and this is just the climax. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This, this is where he's been going with this woman. This is why he had to go through Samaria was to bring us to this point with this woman. And what Jesus says about himself here is like an atomic bomb. I know we read it, it's just a few words, but it's just huge. His actual words are this, I myself am. I am. Now this woman, she would have known the first five books of the Old Testament. She would have got this. John's readers would have We've seen this, and, and I think we see this, and we shouldn't miss this. When the Lord revealed His name to Moses, what did He say? He said, I am who I am. And He says, do you say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is His name. The name of the sovereign Lord. I am. So Jesus reveals Himself to this Samaritan woman as the fulfillment of God's name revealed to Moses and confirmed and worked out through the covenant that He made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob whose well they're sitting by. He says, I Myself am. He is the I Am. He is the Messiah. She and others have been hoping for And so I can only imagine there was this period of just stunned silence after Jesus makes this announcement to this woman. He brings this woman, he brings us face to face with himself. Now we expect the curtain to kind of close on this scene. And the next day Jesus went on from there to Jerusalem or something like that. But this profound moment has this awkward interruption. And the disciples return from the grocery store or from Panera. Uh, They've got, they have lunch. Verse 27. Just then, he's very specific in how he says this. Just as he said this to the woman and she's shocked. Just then his disciples came back. They saw this and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said out loud, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They thought it, but they didn't say it. So his disciples are just stunned. They're amazed that Jesus has been talking to a woman. Rabbis don't talk to women in public, especially Samaritan women. But they keep the questions to themselves. And then... The way John tells the rest of the story of this woman and, and the village, the, the town of Sychar here, the people of Sychar, it's very interesting. And so he, he deals what, with what happens to this woman and the, and the people of Sychar. And he does it in two parts that kind of bracket this last section of John 4 here. That, and, and then right in the middle of telling us about the woman and the residents of Sychar, he, he has this interlude and he tells us kind of the rest of the story of his interactions with the disciples as they come back. So he tells us. Um, he, he gives us the words of Jesus to his disciples. As he's explaining the deeper reality of what's taking place there. With the woman in the town. And So what does Jesus finally do? He brings us face to face with his mission. He brings us face to face with his mission. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. And went away into town. The disciples come. She leaves. She's so excited. That she just leaves her water. But the very reason she made the journey out there. Was to fill up the water pot. And to take it back. So she could wash things. And have water to drink. And clean. And all of that. But she meets the Messiah. And she just leaves it. And runs into town. There's no record that she ever even filled the water pot. And so she's going into the very town. Where she is. An outcast. And and she she's despised there, she's hated there, she's avoided there, and yet she, 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 she's not been able to make eye contact with these people before, and yet now she's she goes into town and she's apparently just indiscriminately looking at people and telling them about Jesus. What what transformation here? So she Went away, verse 28, into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now they know what she's done, and so she's, she's telling people, you gotta meet this man who told me even about my sordid past, I don't care about that. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, then there's a scene change in verse 31. There's this, this break in that story, and we'll come back to that in a moment, but, Let's take it as it's given to us through John. So this verse 31 is kind of meanwhile back at the ranch. And so we're seen back to the disciples here with Jesus. Verse 31, meanwhile the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. So they're puzzled, if not annoyed by the woman that Jesus has been talking to, but they don't ask questions. They're focused on food. I get this. And so they're hungry. They want their master, their teacher to eat. They bought groceries for him. Let's eat, Rabbi. It's been a long day. Let's eat. But verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? I mean, what what, did we miss something here? Did somebody, was somebody coming out as we were going in and we just didn't see him? How did he get food? I mean they're they're just like Nicodemus, they're just like the woman of Samaria. They they they're stuck in the physical. They can't they they miss it. Jesus said to them, "My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work." He's saying, "Submission to the Father's will tastes better than anything you can bring me from town to eat." This is better. While you've been in town, I've been I've been eating and being satisfied and just consuming food. What was my food? It was when I it, my food was this conversation that I had with this woman of Samaria. Oh, and it was good. It's good because I'm obeying the Father's will. I'm doing what He sent me to do. This was the Father's will. This is why He had to pass through Samaria, and He's completely satisfied. We don't have to wonder what the Father's will is. He's made that very clear. And we'll see it in John chapter 640. This is the will of my Father. Pay attention. This is it. That everyone who looks on the Son. And believes in him. Should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says my food is to give eternal life. (laughs) That's That's what satisfies my soul. Now did Jesus need to eat? Yes. But don't miss this. And Jesus explains, uh, Jesus, uh, th- that explains, excuse me, what Jesus says next. Verse 35, do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. What Jesus is saying is, I'm reaping eternal life. This is what he's been doing with this woman of Samaria. This is what he's doing through her as she goes back to the town and talks to people. Now, there, there were no crops in this region at this time that were that, that became white at harvest time. That I mean, from what I'm reading, and there, there, it's not like there were. That's there was. It's not like cotton. They weren't growing cotton. I mean, I, coming from West Texas, cotton's white when, for harvest. There's nothing comparable to that, in Jesus' day. And so what is Jesus referring to? The fields are white for harvest. Now, again, notice where this is sandwiched. So the, the woman ran into town. She told everybody about Jesus. you got to come meet this guy. He told me everything about me. Could this be the Christ? The Samaritans leave Sychar half a mile away. And they go to the well, Jacob's well, to meet and to hear Jesus. And as Jesus is talking with his disciples, those Samaritans from Sychar are streaming toward him. And most likely in that day, they would be wearing white robes, most of them. So he's pointing to them and he's saying, look, look at the harvest. Fields are white. Ready. That's the harvest. It's a harvest of souls. Samaritan souls. And it's time to reap a harvest of unlikely converts. So, Verse 37, for here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered entered into their labor. And what is he saying here? This is what I think he's saying. He's he's looking at his disciple. You're going to share in the reaping. Others have labored before you, but you're going to get to share in the harvest. Who are the others? I think in the context, I think it's Jesus. I think it's this woman at Samaria who's gone back and Born witness to her to her town, Jesus is, Jesus has been sowing and gathering fruit. This woman has been sowing the seed of the gospel in a sense, and telling the townspeople. And the disciples are about to be part of the harvest. They're going to get to enjoy that. This is why the story, I think, returns in verse thirty-nine to forty-two to the testimony of the woman, to the testimony of Jesus. They are the others. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So they believed in Jesus as she bore witness to Christ. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know That this is indeed the Savior of the world. So there's this spiritual awakening in this dusty little town of Sychar. I mean, we've read through this, but just see what's happening here. The most unlikely place for this to happen. you got many souls that are born again right here. Many have believed in Jesus because of her word. Many more believe because of jesus word, this is the labor of the others that the disciples are entering into others have labored you have entered into their labor. you get to reap the harvest, and so Jesus brings us face to face with his mission what 's driving him what is what is fueling him? He, he, we get to enter into the labor of another. Jesus is still on mission he 's still accomplishing this task he 's still bringing eternal life and we're to join Him in the sowing and reaping work. God continues to use men and women and children just like you and me. Sinful, forgiven, pardoned men, women and children to to sow, to reap. But we, like the disciples, are often more concerned about our stomachs. We're concerned about our stomach's more than we are about the souls of the lost. We can be oblivious to what God is doing in our midst. We can be completely ignorant of, of, of the mission that He's accomplishing all around us. We're, we're looking down at food and Jesus says to us, lift, Look, lift up your eyes. See, see what I'm doing. See what's happening all around you. And you, you, you're, you just completely missed it. We we can get consumed with food. We can get consumed with paying bills and, and and shopping and and getting good grades in school and hanging out with friends, going to church, and doing the right stuff. And those are good things. I'm mean, it's not the, the bad things. Food is fine, but but we have our heads down and when the fields are ready. God's at work. Jesus says, "Look, are you consumed with?" Just a heavy concern for lost souls around you, around the world. Are are you living on mission as Jesus brings us face to face with what's most important? This is the will of the Father. This is what's the consuming passion of my life. This is what you're to be involved in. Are you fueled by that mission? does it change does does that charge to make disciples of all nations has it gripped your life so that it affects how you think how you speak how you act and how you plan, how you're planning for your future and how you're planning for your week is it is it does it has it gripped you it gripped Christ and he found great satisfaction in it and so will we let's pray together father I just const- this mission that you've set before us because we're so constrained by the reality of what God you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've met us in our weakness, in our sin. You didn't you didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. You met us in our in our rebellion, in our immorality, in our in our status of being an outcast like this woman and you you graciously offered to us a drink of living water and all who've tasted have come to know eternal life so we thank you for what you've done to draw us and and we thank you for how you've given us clear instructions in sending us out and i pray god i pray father that you would forgive us where we've been negligent where we've where we've been stuck on food just coming to church week after week and doing the right stuff and Doing our family thing and school thing and work thing and we just are, we, not bad things, but just, we're, we're going through motions and doing good things, but we've, we've, we've got our heads down. More than we should, Lord. And we need to look up. We need to have our eyes. Harvest, the fields are ready. You're, you're at work all around us. And we, in ways that we don't know, in ways that we don't see, we would have never anticipated that this town of Sycar. Would be where you would bring in this great harvest of souls. And we look around us. And we see people that we just think no. Couldn't happen. And yet you're able. And you're willing. and You're at work. And So God forgive us for. For indifference. And, and, and help us Lord. Help us draw our attention. Lift our heads. Lift our eyes to see. See what you're doing. And help us to be fully engaged in it. I pray in Jesus name. Amen.